0: Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast, a big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everybody, I want to take a quick minute to tell you something that I'm really excited about. I've recently teamed up with Hitched Inc., one of the biggest and fastest growing tech startups in oil and gas. You've probably seen them all over LinkedIn. From generators to light towers, pumps to forklifts, use Hitch to pair your company with reliable rental suppliers and eliminate the hassle of logistics through the use of an in-app platform. Hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to schedule a demo. All right, welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Chris Meshack, Director, Private Equity at... Pickering Energy Partners. Chris, how are you doing this beautiful afternoon? I'm sorry to bring you into this little dungeon here when it's beautiful outside, but appreciate you making your way in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. appreciate the opportunity to be here. And uh, (laughs) even if it is almost 80 degrees outside, at least we don't have to look at
0: it. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I was in a meeting with a large operator earlier this afternoon and their offices overlooked I-10 and down and it just, it looked beautiful outside. And you could tell people were just kind of gazing off and it ended up being a longer meeting than i was hoping but certainly everyone was excited once it got to be lunchtime, they all booked out of there and just even just to walk around and enjoy the weather it was was nice but let's take a quick break if you like coffee and want to hang out for about a half an hour here in houston leave me a review send me a message and let me know that you left a review and i'll buy you coffee if not that's totally cool i'm extremely grateful that you've been listening a big shout out to Reese Kreitz for lining this up and coordinating our schedules. It took a little bit of back and forth, but I know how busy you must be. And so we finally made the stars align and here we are.
1: Yeah. Reese is an absolute all-star. I'm not sure I could live my life day to day without her and the team's help.
0: Yeah. And so when I interviewed Dan, was it Kate? I forget her last name. That, yeah, uh, Kate Ogden. Yeah. Kate Ogden. She was a super champ too. She was like, Super punctual. Like, you know, I'd send her an email and back and forth. And so you certainly work with a great team there. So I got to applaud you guys. Well, thanks for coming on to the show. Have you ever been on a podcast before? No, first time. Wow. Popping the cherry. I like that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you could do it with me. Do you listen to podcasts? I do. Okay. Like what?
1: Listen to The Daily. Yeah. I'm a big fan of BBC Radio 4's In Our Time. Okay. It's narrated by a guy named Melvin Bragg, who has this kind of british grandfather cadence and he's fantastic at narrating and leading a discussion. He gets three experts on some topic ranging from the calendar to an obscure book or a period of time, no or a historical way. event, and lets them talk about whatever it is for 45 minutes. It's very targeted and to the point. Okay. So really that's one of my favorites and I listen to a lot of audiobooks too.
0: Okay, good deal. Like Being a finance guy, do you find yourself gravitating towards finance stuff or do you like to disconnect and do like listen to off the wall stuff?
1: It's a combination of everything. I find myself listening mostly to nonfiction type of content generally. I listen to a lot of memoirs, biographies, autobiographies, and kind of historical fiction. Read a lot of that, but broad ranging, not necessarily finance focused. (laughs) I got you. And then the occasional, you know, pure fun stuff.
0: Yes. Yes. So on the lengthy drives to work, you throw in audiobooks or podcasts. Yeah. Almost yeah. exclusively now. Yeah. You know, what's funny. I grew up obviously listening, you know, most of us listen to music and now I don't know what the latest and greatest is on music because I'm such a sponge for information. And so me personally, you know, I'll listen to the Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal, stuff to, to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on on the finance world. I listen to a few oil and gas ones, some health and fitness ones. But It's kind of refreshing when I do take, you know, a break off of podcasting and audiobooks to listen to some music. And I'm like, okay, now I remember why I enjoy music so much because it kind of puts you in a different state of mind and it allows you to kind of zone out. But I'm always trying to, you know, cram as much info into my head as possible. And so thanks for these silly iPhones and all our smartphones to be able to give us information nonstop. It's hard to disconnect, which I asked Dan this and I'm going to ask you this. Being in the finance world there's constantly information being thrown at you. It doesn't matter what time of day it is here, somewhere in the world markets are going, people are doing business, trades are happening. How do you unplug from that?
1: I think you just make time for it and you know when you're working you're working, when you're with family and doing the other things that you like to do in your life. You just make time to be present in those activities and I think one one advantage of being in the private equity world is we aren't as driven by the day-to-day volatility of the markets gotcha so the public markets are something that we we certainly follow closely and keep track on those because it's a proxy for private companies but it's not necessarily the case where the dow has a really bad down day mm. and it's all hands on deck at the office because of that right it's much more kind of project driven so it's you know we're going to sharpen our pencils and grind really hard to get a deal done or get a fundraise closed or whatever the case may be yeah but then once it's done take some time reset and then gotcha come back to it as opposed to kind of a marathon and a sprint <laughs> yeah no you kidding. can do both but you take breaks in between the sprinting or the marathoning
0: gotcha gotcha i kind of had to laugh when i asked dan I, you know i said how do you unplug and do you have any routines? And he said, yeah, my routine is the last thing I do before going to sleep is I check my phone and see what the markets are doing. And the first thing I would do when I wake up is check the markets. I'm like, okay, you're all in. Like, there's no. It doesn't sound like there's much of a break. And granted, I think he's got a new baby sort of that's here. And I'm sure that takes up quite a bit of his time. But anyway, I just thought I would ask. I always find that interesting. I want to give the audience some value right off the bat. What can you tell me about the current landscape of energy investments? And is there light at the end of this tunnel that we're in right now? Just very broadly. And then we'll get into some details after.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're really excited. It's a great time to be an energy investor. It's a challenging time to be a historic energy investor and have you know, a portfolio of assets that you've built and invested over the past five to 10 years. has been a really, really challenging time. Right. But it's a great time to be deploying capital. All the things that should happen in the bottom of a market are happening right mm-hmm. lack of access to capital is causing you know laser focus from management teams on free cash flow generation returning cash to investors marginal projects are being rejected and the cream is rising to the top so to speak and it's really becoming a buyer's market yep you know, the permian is very very competitive still and very fully priced but if you start to get outside the Permian and if you're willing to work or look at kind of deals and assets that, that aren't in the core of the core in Midland County, good vertical horizontal oil production, mm-hmm. if you're willing to look in tier two basins or elsewhere, conventional wells, conventional resources, there's some great value to be had today. So we're really excited. Yeah. But challenging.
0: Of course. So when you say tier two, are there any sort of areas that you're seeing a shift of capital being deployed into? Are there any trends that are the writings on the wall? Or one that comes to mind is just like, I keep hearing EOR and conventionals. I don't know if that's something that is something that's in your radar or something that you guys have been hearing, but obviously it's been you know all Permian for the last who knows how long, but just wasn't sure if there was anywhere else that's sort of heating up.
1: You know, there's been some activity. There was the large Hillcorp Corp deal in Alaska. That's obviously all conventional. That was kind of third quarter, I think, of last year. Where we're seeing a lot of opportunity for our capital is on the what we're calling the passive upstream side. So this would be overrides, minerals, non op. If you think about being an oil company and you have a you know, portfolio of wells, some of which are operated and a handful of which are are going to be non-operated, if you're a big oil company, a large number of which are are Mm non-operated, and you have an increasingly shrinking and increasingly scrutinized CapEx budget for the year, the first thing to go is going to be that non-op. If you have $100 million to spend, you're going to spend that money drilling and operating your own production most likely. And when your partner's capital call you, you're most likely going to go non-consent right in a limited capital world so the opportunity to come in fill those afes for a much smaller promote than is traditional you know, traditional promote on a non op deals 15 to 20% those have come way way down to the under 10% sort of promote which means you can buy in if that promote is your implied acreage cost okay. you can buy into these basins for much much cheaper than than you could otherwise so we're seeing minerals markets non op an override that sort of chunk of the value chain is particularly star for capital and there's some really good opportunities that are coming out of that. Interesting. Haven't seen as much on the EOR and the conventional side. Hear a lot of people talk about it. I just haven't seen much activity going. It's a tough sell to investors right now for, I, for whatever reason. I got you.
0: Do you find a lot of folks right now divesting a lot and trying to get rid of things to pay off debt? Do you see that happening quite a bit or
1: we're certainly starting to see it. Okay. And I think there's been a number of bankruptcies and obviously there's been, you know, assets that have fallen out of that. There's been certainly asset sales to shore up balance sheets. I think it's been a little bit early and one of the kind of interesting dynamics right now is private equity backed companies. And the private equity sponsors, by and large, as, as kind of a whole industry, are sitting on a, a ton of dry powder. And so the private equity sponsors continue to support their portfolio companies, which means there's a big chunk of the market that hasn't been forced to sell assets just yet, especially with where prices were for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But as you know, prices continue to stay range bound or or fall to the high forties, low fifties, I think you're starting to see investor fatigue. And I think they'll be in addition to asset sales, I think you'll start to see consolidation. That's where there'll be a lot of a lot of activity.
0: Yeah. In the small world that I live in, it seems like everyone's hoping for consolidation just for the, the health of the industry more so than anything. So we've seen a little bit of it, but I, I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen more, but maybe it's all coming down the pipeline and it'll just hit hard over the next couple of quarters. Who knows? But I mean- Are you guys surprised that there hasn't been more, or are we just kind of waiting to see what happens, or what are most folks doing? Do you
1: know? You know, I think there will be a few things. If you look at how management teams are compensated, they have to pay back the sponsor plus some rate of return, and then they they get into a sharing. Mm -hmm. The longer they don't return capital, that you know, six, eight, ten percent hurdle rate, whatever it is for each management team, that starts to compound and it gets to a point where the management team no matter what, no matter how good it ever got, if it's long enough, they'll never be able to get over the hurdle and, and get compensated. Okay. I don't think we're quite there yet. So you'll see, I think at some point, management teams will start to say, I can't get paid here. Let's combine these two companies and then I can go find a new opportunity. Makes sense. So I think you'll see that from kind of the bottom up. And I think you'll also start to see LPs, the institutional investors, the pensions and the endowments of the world, put pressure on the private equity funds to force some of that consolidation. You know, if you're a big private equity fund and you have five or 10 management teams in the Permian, do you really need five CEOs and five CFOs and five VPs of ops when you could probably roll it up and let's say, you know, the management team across the five teams has a hundred million dollars of, of overhead every year, and you could combine that and cut, let's say $50 million out of that, if that $50 $50 million is worth five to six times for valuation, that cash flow. You know, you just created $250 million of value by consolidating the companies without drilling a single well. That sure. $250 million may be more value than you'll be able to create drilling wells depending on the structure of each company and the geology that they sit on. So I think you'll see kind of some of this will be driven by management teams, some of it will be driven by the investors. But they have a lot of dry powder still so they can weather this storm pretty well gotcha so i don't know that i'm surprised that we haven't seen it i think it will come but we're probably still a little early
0: okay no i want to shift gears a little bit and talk more about yourself you know as i always do i look at linkedin and and you've got a pretty lengthy resume in the finance world so Talk to me a little bit, you know, where you're from and and how you ended up getting into the finance world, because that's pretty interesting. And you seem like a pretty young dude and you've been in it for a while and you hold a pretty solid position. So talk a little bit about that.
1: I grew up in Colorado, ended up going to school at a place called Colgate in upstate New York. Okay. And you go to Colgate with a bunch of dreams. And so far as I can tell, you pretty much leave as a finance (laughs) professional or you, you end up in law school. And at least back then, maybe, maybe nowadays it's changed. And so I did a bunch of internships across finance throughout college, an insurance company, a hedge fund, and then lived in China for a little while and got an internship at Credit Suisse in Hong Kong for a summer, which was a cool experience. What was the best memory being over there?
0: That must have been a blast or maybe not so much. Man, the best memory.
1: The most interesting memory was going to North Korea for four days. Okay. Um, with my dad, which was a very interesting vacation. Why? Because you were with your dad or because you were in North Korea? Just because of North Korea. Oh, okay. I, I didn't actually didn't tell him. He showed up in Beijing. And I was like, hey, remember that money that you transferred for this trip? I didn't tell you, but we're going to Pyongyang tomorrow. <laughs> Don't worry. It's totally fine. We have visas. And we did. Nice. Um, <laughs> was he surprised? He was very surprised. He was, he was a great sport, though. We, we had a fun time. Right on. Um, so graduated 2009. Entry-level finance jobs were really hard to come by. So went back to China, did another language study program and traveled for a little bit, ended up in a kind of trader training program at a small prop fund in New York, and then found an opportunity at what was then a small consulting firm in Colorado called Bentec that was doing some pretty interesting stuff on the data and analytics side for oil and gas. So moved back to Colorado, joined them. And at the time when I joined, I joined what was just called the international team, which was anything that wasn't North American natural gas. We ended up building out analytics platforms for European gas and power and LNG. And along the way, the company got sold to Platts, which was part of the McGraw-Hill publishing family of companies. Now that's all been rolled up into S&P and their big research platform. So that was kind of where I cut my teeth on learning the oil and gas markets and oil and gas industry, and then really wanted to get back into the finance and investing side and moved to a client of Bentex. It was a firm called Haddington. Haddington Ventures is based here in Houston. They do mostly midstream and infrastructure investing, particularly underground storage development and construction, which was a uh-huh. really, really interesting place to work. Worked there for four and a half years. And then one of the guys who worked there with me had joined what was then TPH and pulled me over about two years ago now.
0: Okay. I want to ask about Pickering and TPH, but before that, I mean, most folks in high school, when you ask what they want to do, they don't want to say, I want to be an investment banker. And I mean, maybe some do. Was that always a passion of yours? Or how did you end up in it? Or were you just like, I don't know what to do, but it sounds like I will make a good bunch of money. And like, what was that? Like, how'd you make that decision?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I was always very interested in it. I mean, ever since I was a kid, back in the day, when my dad had his first cell phone, he used to call and never instead of podcasts. I don't know if you ever had these growing up, but you would call, it was like an answering service. You'd call an answering machine, but it would be some guy who was like a research analyst who had recorded his stock picks or whatever. No way. I'd never
0: heard of that. And they're like, you
1: know, a 15 minute message, but it was effectively like a 1995 podcast. Yeah. Remember growing up listening to those and and kind of trying to read the Wall Street Journal and figure out what it all meant. No way. And then ended up at Colgate in a place where the kind of path was very heavily weighted towards, you know, investment banking and financial careers. And so, those two things kind of lined up and worked. And I sort of fell into it and got lucky a bunch of times.
0: There you go. So it was always in your DNA, right? From being a young chap. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So you mentioned Wall Street Journal. And I ask this because I always get hung up. Are you a Wall Street Journal guy or a Bloomberg? Like if the general population wants to get finance news, a lot of it's the same, but (laughs) what would you pick if you had to pick one? Or if say like someone's trying to subscribe? Random question, but I was curious.
1: I like the Wall Street Journal. I read it every day, but. Bloomberg certainly has its place. I mean, on energy specifically, Bloomberg is going to be better. Okay. Bloomberg Energy, energy Finance is, is great for the kind of transition, renewables, alternative space and for just pure financial data. Yeah, Bloomberg has it. But I like the interest stories on Wall Street Journal.
0: <laughs> Perfect. No, that's a good answer. I was curious. So you're now at Pickering Energy Partners. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there. And then you mentioned a little bit about a new venture that you guys are embarking. So why don't you touch on that as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Pickering Andrew Partners, it's actually Pickering Andrew Partners 2.0. The original one was founded in 2004 by Dan Pickering that ultimately became Tudor Pickering Holt. Along the way, Dan started an asset management business that was called TPH Asset Management. And after Perella Weinberg and Tudor Pickering merged to create a much larger advisory investment banking business, they made the decision that in order to ultimately go public with their business. wanted to get out of the asset management business so they shut down spun out sold various asset management businesses we spun out about september of last year to become a standalone asset management firm mostly focused on private equity but with some public strategies as well and working on a bunch of bunch of new stuff so we have dry powder in, in existing funds that we're working to invest and that's a really broad mandate kind of across across the energy spectrum
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's been mostly upstream and oil field services but some power and some some infrastructure in there as well and we're looking a lot more at kind of alternatives and renewables and we've also been we just formed a joint venture with Henry resources it's run by Jim Henry and the Henry family out of Midland we're really excited about that that's a joint venture to go and acquire producing assets in the permian basin okay the question that we all kind of asked ourselves was there's all this private equity capital that's going in to develop the permian who buys it once it's developed so we've raised money and formed that partnership to go and be the source of capital to provide liquidity to those sellers that's uh, so that, pretty cool that's one new venture that we're really excited about and we're also looking at how we're going to be be standing up a consulting practice here uh you know Pickering Archer Partners Tudor Pickering and the folks who work with us have been in the business of advising our clients for a really long time so we're going to formalize that service kind of for the first time here that we're excited about that we think kind of given where the market is you know investing is full of opportunities but there's a lot of fatigue both on the investor side and the management team side and we think that the perspective of sitting kind of in between industry and financial sources, but being very focused on the energy space gives us a perspective that can be valuable and and helpful to the people that we know and and like and, and who trust us in the energy business.
0: Right, right. So we talked a little bit about this before, but the three big letters that seem to be a hot topic of discussion right now is ESG. And for those of you who aren't aware, that stands for environmental, social, and governance. In fact, I have a pamphlet in my briefcase from visiting a customer's office and large operator, no names, but that shows one of their big goals for 2020 is to provide solutions through their ESG model. How much does that play into when looking at disciplined investing? How does that tie into your world and does it change things? Does it change the way you guys look at things? Like talk a little bit about that.
1: Certainly changes things in a number of ways. Some ways it changes things, some ways it doesn't. You know, the ways that it doesn't is back in the old days, if we can say that just a few years ago. Right. Some of these tasks we just called due diligence, right? If a company has a horrible environmental record, Either we don't want to invest in them, or you buy the company, you fix all that up, and there's value creation because this company has fixed their bad track record. Right. Now we get to call that ESG, give ourselves a huge pat on the back. I think it will increasingly become a cost of doing business. What form that takes, we don't quite know yet. It could be in the form of a straight carbon tax, it could be in other regulatory reporting requirements, some combination of all of those. I think part of the challenge is right now, ESG means different things to every different person. Mm-hmm. To some, it's a very technical data term, you know, collecting how many trucks do you have? How many miles do they drive? What kind of fuel do they use? Like a very, very niche technical gotcha. data collection and reporting to quantify somehow, like your your footprint or, or yeah. whatever. And to others, it's more of a, A state of mind or, you know, an idea or... Like a a cultural thing or... So I think the battle will be fought coming up with the rules. Mm -hmm. Once everyone knows the rules, you learn how to play within those rules. Of course. And so the battle will be fought making the rules. Once the rules are set and wherever they're set, federal level, local level, whatever the the various jurisdictions are and the various forms they take, once they're set, I think people will be able to comply relatively quickly. So the battle will be fought in the next... Period of time to come up with what is the rule book, what is the field of play, and how do you operate within that. It's interesting what's a branding and marketing exercise in the ESG world versus something else. You know, is it does water infrastructure become an ESG investment because it deals with the handling and treatment of water, even though that's what we used to call oil field services, right? Like saltwater disposal or something like that could now fall into an ESG bucket because it's right. It's water handling and if it has an angle of water recycling or returning water hydrological oh, I see. cycle, that's then an ESG investment firmly within the oil field services space. The questions will be, if you are an ESG investor, quote unquote, are you allowed to invest in oil and gas? Mm. And if you're invested in oil and gas, you can make these ESG angles, right? Emissions reductions, reduce flaring. Get trucks off the road, you know, come up with new technologies that are more efficient. All these kinds of things can make your operations more efficient, better tracking, understanding what what you have and what you're you're doing, what you're using. Really intimately, I think will be an increasing area of focus and a compliance cost. I'm not sure how it shifts the day-to-day operations of a company. Sure. Sort of implementing all those things that make you more efficient and reduce your footprint and reduce flaring and, and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of opportunity and questions for things like carbon offsets. Okay. So we're oil and gas investors and we've had investors come to us and say like, hey, could you guys offer a program to buy carbon offsets to offset the footprint of, of your portfolio? That's something our constituents are asking for. So the investors would pay for that and there's a drag on the returns. And the question is, you know, it's one to two percentage points of return drag worth it to you, the investor, to purchase offsets that would then go and offset the, the footprint. And those are you know, very round numbers, and it, it varies depending on the type of assets held in the portfolio. But there's going to be a cost. Some folks are willing to look at that.
0: Huh. Interesting take. Well, let's talk about like oil and gas investing. Is there an appetite for people out there to invest in oil and gas right now, just in general? Or are people waiting to see if companies can actually figure out how to get positive cash flow, provide money back to current investors that are still hanging with them? I mean, what does that look like right now? I mean, obviously we're in a you know a crappy time where there's a lot of blood on the streets and it may be a good time, but what does the appetite for most look like right now?
1: Certainly at large investors, large institutions, the appetite is limited to do oil and gas investing in the the way it's been done the past decade, let's call it. Yeah. And by that, I mean make a very large investment in a blind pool fund. So this is a fund made up of really smart people who have great networks and relationships and backgrounds in oil and gas operations investing, investment banking, whatever. Give them $2 billion, they will then go and back 10 or 20 management teams to go try and find a deal or an asset, eventually, You know, a third or half of those teams will get shut down. They'll end up with their portfolio of, you know, five to 10 companies that will actually get the capital. And five years ago, management teams could come in, drill the corner well, drill the corners of the acreage, drill a gusher, and flip the acreage. Now they're stuck with the acreage and they have to actually develop it. So the game has shifted a little bit where instead of being capitalized to acquire a really, really big land position and drill a couple wells, you now have to. Live within your cash flow and live with your means. So buy what you can take down, and by take down, I mean fully develop, mm-hmm. right? Within reasonable kind of access to debt, leverage assumptions, and cash flow, and then and then your equity. It's a different game there hmm. from the private equity perspective. I think from the institutional perspective, they're just tired. <laughs> it's been ten years of you know oil and has been the worst performing sector of the S and P for a decade. I think. It, if you're an investment manager at a large institutional pension and you take a upstream oil and gas deal to your investment committee, it's that's a really, really hard sell and really tough, really tough sell in today's environment when for the last 10 years, if you were in almost any other sector by and large, yeah, it's been great, right? Healthcare, tech, real estate, all these things have done great for, for the LPs. So they're they're really tired. They've been really beat up in kind of that historic traditional model. In the area that we found success recently. Using the Henry Resources Joint Venture as an example was a really, really targeted story. Here is a partner. They're a best-in-class operator. They've got 50 or 60 years of operating history that you can actually go and audit. Mm -hmm. We are going to target this very, very specific type of assets, horizontal oil-weighted wells in the Delaware and the Midland basins, operated production, certain characteristics that we're looking for with a very active hedging program to lock in returns. Mm-hmm. Lower overall return profile, but worst case scenario, you know, oil goes to zero. You're going to get 80 cents of your of your dollar back or your whole dollar back, as opposed to oil goes to 40 and you lose it all. Yep. So that pitch resonated with the investors. Here's a very, very specific asset portfolio alongside a best-in-class partner with a specific window with a set of specific reasons why we want to go do that, as opposed to, Hey, we're a bunch of smart folks who have been investing in energy for 10 years. Give us some money. We promise we can turn it into
0: more. Right. You mentioned S and P and the S and P has been on a tear for the last 10 years or so. Obviously there's been a bit of a, a pullback or a correction or whatever the correct term is mainly surrounding this coronavirus. From my perspective, I guess it's a two part question. My first question is, if the s and p if if somehow the bottom falls out and there's a major correction or all of a sudden we go into a bear market for whatever reason, how does that affect the energy and would that hurt or would it create opportunity depends who you are <laughs> yeah, good point.
1: <laughs> if you're you know the CEO of an overlevered public company, it's probably pretty bad for you in that scenario. <laughs> You know, stock prices go down 50% and commodity prices go down 50% or something. Yeah. It'd be my guess if that were the case, there would be effectively no good public oil and gas companies left, except for the, you know, the super majors and the really big guys who can't be taken private, but all the small operators of the the public equities are, in our view, pretty discounted already. If they came down another 50%, we think there'd be capital that would come in and just take up all the, all the good stuff <laughs> yeah. and there'd be a handful of kind of, you know, zombie companies that are just kind of on this treadmill where they, yeah. they have to spend all the money they have to drill, to pay their debt so they can get enough money to drill, to pay their debt. And they're kind of on that treadmill, Ugh. but I think you'd see very few public oil and gas companies left in that, <laughs> in that scenario, but it's a real possibility, you know, with half of China on lockdown. Yeah, force majeure on LNG cargoes. I think I saw 26 LNG cargoes. They're not going to take the first half or so of the year. You know, Wuhan is as big as New York city and right. nobody's driving cars or making stuff. I mean, that's, that's real demand destruction regardless of whether it's, it's short term or not, it could definitely have, you know, downward, downward impact on prices and the overall market, which is, you know, it's been the, this case where oil goes up, the oil stocks don't rally, oil goes down, the oil stocks sell off. There's a lot of beta to the downside in the energy sector right now. And I think falling public equity values are going to be kind of double bad for the energy sector, mm-hmm. if you will.
0: Oh, gotcha. gosh. Yeah. The beta will be higher. So, I mean, it's hard to predict, obviously, because we don't know how fast and what the true numbers look like with this whole coronavirus thing. But I mean, do you think we're close to kind of getting out of this? Like, assuming all of a sudden we don't hear any more cases of you know, people getting hit with coronavirus in the US and China starts to like kind of get back to normal. I mean, will everything kind of bounce back pretty quickly or for oil and gas, obviously it's all about supply and demand. So would the demand change pretty quickly, obviously, if everything slowly started to get back to normal?
1: Yeah. I mean, assuming everything's lifted tomorrow, I think things go back to normal effectively immediately. Mm-hmm. The issue with commodity markets and this holds out kind of almost no matter what the commodity is, and, and it's held out throughout time. If you get supply demand out of balance by about three percent, one way or the other, is when you get big price reactions to the upside or downside. Right, little bit long, prices collapse because if you need hundred barrels of oil and I have a hundred and one, you'll pay for a hundred, and that last barrel, I give it away. you know, like, I don't. It doesn't matter to you. You only can take a hundred, right? Yeah, that last one's worthless. So the marginal barrel sets the price. Same way, if you have to have a hundred because you committed to someone to deliver a hundred, and I only have ninety-nine, you'll pay anything to get that last barrel because the whole thing relies on it, right? Yeah. So if you get commodity markets out of whack about three percent, that's when you get prices, you know, rocketing up or collapsing down, and so you don't need the market to be that out of balance for too long to see really kind of violent price price reactions. Mm-hmm. So everything goes back to normal tomorrow. It's fine. You know, 700 million people continue to to be under quarantine or under lockdown or whatever whatever it's called in China for 6 months. That's pretty bearish scenario for not just commodities but kind of supply chains and and all the other stuff tied to it.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Middle Eastern tensions. Is that playing a significant role on the landscape of our business right now? I mean, yeah. What's your take on that currently?
1: I think the market told us exactly where the market stands on Middle Eastern tensions after the upcake bombing in Saudi where prices opened up 10 bucks. I think three or four days later, they were back to where they were or maybe even lower.
0: Yeah. It was everyone was surprised. I mean, it, including myself, I thought there would be a, a similar impact, but for longer. And it just kind of like was a blip in the radar. And it was like, oh, OK, that didn't affect anything. Is it because we have such control on how much we can just flood the market real quick with oil? Or I mean,
1: well, the market clearly told us that that is what the market believes to be true. Whether or not it is true. Right. Is up for debate. I would say the market, in my opinion, underestimates the vulnerability of large amounts of oil supply. And there's effectively no geopolitical risk premium baked into the price today. It it seems to kind of operate purely on economics and not on kind of broader geopolitical tensions. Hmm. Whether that changes, I don't know. Certainly isn't impacting our business at all. I mean, the last 10 years have been so... I think 10, 15 years ago when the US production was in terminal decline and you had to go into you know, a bunch of international destinations and do these multi year giant, you know, multi-billion dollar development projects to find new oil, bring new oil to market. That influence, that being the kind of geopolitical landscape, influenced the day-to-day, you know, of the industry much more than it affects the broader, you know, energy investing space today, which is largely driven by US onshore unconventional. And that's just a price game. It's like they'd all love it if the price was ten dollars higher, but no matter what the price is, they always want $10 higher. Yeah. You know, we can't predict the price. You can only operate. You can only control what you can control. So make sure you you have the levers in place to control your risk based on whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. Gotcha. Hedges, contracts, whatever it is that you use to control risk, because things like bombings in the Middle East are going to continue to happen. Right. And whether or not there's, a risk premium in the price we don't know it probably just means there's a lot of volatility going forward
0: gotcha would you say it's important for u.s land to take their foot off the gas and maybe try and produce less i mean because right now i think we're at an all-time high i mean are we at peak production do people need to scale back to help on the fundamentals of how much oils we're just pumping into the market I mean, what's your thoughts?
1: Yeah, Dan Pickering has a long presentation on this that he's been giving. It's called value over volume. Mm-hmm. And the idea is basically the market used to reward growth, growth for growth's sake. Right. Not only does the market not value growth today, in some cases it actually hurts you, especially if growth requires you to be cash flow negative. So what the market is telling companies is stay flat or keep your production growth flat live within your cash flows, and start to give money back to investors. Yep. That's what the market is telling the industry. Most oil and gas companies that I know don't really care about making money. Right, Our job as investors is to find the ones that do care about making money. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of oil and gas companies out there who only care about making more oil and gas. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right? They're not necessarily the same
0: thing. Even at the cost of not making money? I'm sure it's a long, drawn-out answer, but like, why?
1: (laughs) If I knew, I'd probably be on a beach somewhere. (laughs) Um, I think that's kind of a philosophical question about the human condition and, and what drives these people. You know, I think a lot of folks in the oil and gas space in particular, they do this job because they like the business of producing oil and gas, right? Operating wells, drilling wells.
0: Yeah, and trying to outdo their neighbor.
1: Try out to their neighbor, drill a bigger one. Yeah, all of that plays into it. Of um, course, the ego, the ego, and you'd be surprised you see cases where you have really, really distressed debt trading at a huge discount to par. They could go buy their own debt and make better rates of return than they would <laughs> drilling wells. But they'll go, they'll go drill wells anyway. So I think there are great companies out there doing really good work and managing, you know, their balance sheets really, really well. I think on a relative basis, some of them have been rewarded, although none of them greatly for that. I think as a whole, the industry has to slow down growth because while we don't have a demand problem globally, barring coronavirus or or whatever else, Mm -hmm. the market is telling us that we don't need growth of a million barrels a day every year from the US.
0: Right. Yep. I want to respect your time. We're coming up close to 50 minutes here, but if there was a message you'd like to relay, assuming everyone in energy investment was listening to, what would that be right now?
1: I think the message is the market is working and the distress and the pain and, you know, the grind of being at the bottom of the cycle, it's all part of the system working. Mm -hmm. It's a great time to be an energy investor, you know, with all the distress, access to human capital has probably never been higher. I mean, bunch of, Really, really amazing talent is available right now. So you can get really, really great teams and you got to be present to win. You, know, you got to be at the table to win. And this is a cyclical business, this idea that like the cycles are done. We certainly don't believe that. And certainly not in the physical commodity markets, the cycle will turn, but if you're not at the table, you can't win.
0: Right. Baseball analogy, assuming this cycle has nine innings, what inning are we in right now? Do you think? It's going to be an unpopular answer, like five or
1: six. Okay. Historically, cycles take 20 years. Mm -hmm. So the question is, did the cycle start in 2008 or 2014? (laughs) Right. Either way, we have, I think.
0: We got a long way to go.
1: At least a handful of years. The next couple of years, it's really hard to see supply-demand balance really shifting one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Demand kind of continues to chug along upwards, but market's pretty well supplied. And that's fine, right? That is what it is. You just have to live within whatever the market gives you right and assuming that prices are going to go back up is just not rigorous you know or or prudent today
0: gotcha prediction if all of a sudden bernie gets in there and bans fracking then what happens
1: bernie bans fracking uh, or
0: whoever gets in yeah (laughs) let's let's say that actually comes to fruition which if i'm a betting man i don't think it could but it's a topic of discussion what happens if, if that happens
1: a number of things will happen On federal lands, there'll be huge lawsuits. I don't think anything would happen quickly. I think one thing that's kind of interesting is with all the craziness in Washington, you've seen states start to take these issues up on their own. Okay. Right. So the whole industry, all the industries were geared up for federal carbon legislation under Barack Obama that didn't end up happening. And instead of waiting for Trump one, Trump two, or whatever happens next to come up with federal carbon legislation. California went ahead and did it. You know, North Pacific Northwest started doing it. Colorado's looking at it. You have Reggie in the Northeast. And so the states have started to take some of this under their own, you know, under their own responsibility. Colorado had fracking bans on the ballot. And you talk to those people and, and effectively they say, we're not going to stop until we get this, right? This wasn't just like a one-time ballot issue. I think Yeah. I think you'll see, this is a long-winded way of saying, I think you're already seeing some of the trends of Bernie doing this at the national level. You're seeing it a little bit at the state level. And for consumers, all that's going to do is shift the production. It's my personal opinion that as a consumer, I'd rather have that oil and gas produced in Colorado where there's stringent regulatory environment yep. as opposed to being produced in... Nigeria or, you know, somewhere with a horrible human rights record or a bad environmental record or, or whatever the case may be. Sure. So those barrels will just shift. It probably increases the cost of production, but I don't know that it dramatically shifts kind of energy consumption overnight. Yeah. It's a big engine, no pun intended, that takes a really... We're seeing it in renewables, right? We've been pedal to the metal, <laughs> you know, solar and wind for know, a decade, 15 years now. And that's worked up to about 7% of our energy consumption. It's just a really, really huge problem to tackle. You start, want you to start taking away you know, 100 million barrels a day of oil. Right. Oil demand just takes a really long time to chip away at those things. So I think politicians kind of stroke of the pen may not always keep pace with the physical realities of shifting entire energy ecosystems. And it's happening, right? It just, it just takes a really long time. It's really expensive.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I got one last question for you before we close out here. Do you have any personal daily routines or habits outside of work that kind of help keep you motivated and keep grinding day to day? Do you got anything?
1: Yeah. Wake up, go to the gym. I try and journal in the morning days. I do that. I'm much more productive. Interesting. And always journal about I should do this more. (laughs) Okay. Whether that happens every day, you know. That's all good, man. I hear you on that one. I always audiobook to and from work. That always helps me kind of disconnect from the office. Sure. Yeah, I don't get in the car and listen to financial news. I like to (laughs) get in the car and listen to like... (laughs) kind of a silly historical fiction book right now okay just like totally disconnect
0: which one is it that you're listening to currently
1: taipan it's okay <laughs> this guy james clavel wrote a bunch of these epic novels about asia in the in the 70s okay so i'm just like said 1700s about the settling of hong kong or 1800s early 1800s okay well all um, the
0: people interested now you know
1: yeah go listen go. <laughs> and then i'm actually the opposite of dan pickering i try and turn my phone off either on to do not disturb mode or yeah. I leave it in the other room. Good for you, man. For sure, when I go to bed, I try and do it kind of 30 minutes before bed, but yeah, I'm always on do not disturb because if I wake up in the middle of the night, look at my screen.
0: then I'm It's game on, over. Yeah, on, the mind just starts kind of, racing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Well, again, before we close out here, I just want to take a few moments to tell everyone about some upcoming events.
2: Hi, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So obviously we are in... Uh, unprecedented times right now and have been unable to carry out our last couple of happy hours that we had scheduled for last month. We have chosen to delay them and we'll continue to update you on when exactly we will be able to have those events again. Obviously, we're following along the recommended guidelines of the CDC and the World Health Organization. So we're really looking forward to seeing you and we're hoping that these events are going to happen sooner rather than later. But for now, stay tuned, and we will keep you posted on those dates. Also, just want to say thank you to everyone for continuing to listen to Oil & Gas Global Network. We are fortunate to already have been a virtual company before the coronavirus and all of these issues started plaguing various countries. And we just want to continue bringing you guys the best information And to the best of our ability, keep you informed, especially while everyone is at home or at least most more people than ever before are at home. So we just would like to thank you for continuing to tune in and continuing to listen. And we hope that everyone is staying safe and we wish everyone the best. And thanks again.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oilfield field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get in shape over spring or maybe you got a summer vacation you need to get shredded for, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Man, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Hopefully you got some time to go out and enjoy some of this sunshine. What's the best way for people to reach out either to yourself or to get to know more about, you know, the company or things you guys are doing currently at Pickering there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I assume on the podcast here, there'll be a link to my LinkedIn. Yeah. LinkedIn's great. And if you want to want to email me at Pickering Energy Partners. Okay.com. I'm happy to talk to folks and perfect. And really appreciate the opportunity to be here. This is a lot of fun.
0: Good. Awesome. Well, maybe in a year from now we can do a round two and recap twenty twenty and then what we have to look forward to. Yeah, see if
1: our prognostications were right.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's oil price gonna be end of Q four? Oh we'll yeah. see if you're right when we come back for round two. End of Q four. Let's see. End of the year.
1: I'm gonna say I'm not gonna be that interesting. Forty nine
0: dollars. <laughs> Forty nine. All right. We've got it locked in. Everyone appreciate it. And always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.